the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God had reminded the next generation of Israelites that they were to worship Him wholeheartedly and to worship Him alone. No longer would they be journeying in the desert wilderness. The Israelites were on the cusp of entering the Promised Land. But once in there, they were to continue putting the Lord first. This was included in their sacrifices and offerings, their dealings with one another, and in how the leaders lead the people. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Having urged the people to show their love for God by obeying God's commands, Moses is now knee-deep in explaining how God's commands are affected by living in the land. And that's what Deuteronomy is all about. The whole theme of the book is loving God supremely. So he's calling them to love God. He's explaining them about obeying God's commands. It's one of the ways we show that we love God. And so now he's explaining to them how being in the land will affect the commands that God's already given. We've covered worship, idolatry, dietary laws, and debt laws so far. And tonight we're going to briefly look at the feasts again and how they're affected by being in the land, but the bulk of our time will be spent examining the principles that would govern Israel's civil leaders. And so as we look at the character and the spirituality required for such leaders, it's going to give us a picture of what, not the perfect government, but what good government looks like. So chapter 16, we'll start with the feast and then we'll move on to civil government. So here we see in chapter 16, he says to them, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you forth out of Egypt by night. Here we see God starts off by reminding them of their spiritual birthday. The month of Abib was mid-March to mid-April. It was the first month in Israel's religious calendar. Basically, what Moses is telling them is that when you get into the land, make sure you follow the calendar that God set up. Don't follow the world's calendar. Follow the calendar God set up. Again, highlighting that Israel's to be different. Israel's to be unique from the entire world. And that's just how we're supposed to be too. We're to be different. We're to be unique. Now, when we look at Israel's feasts, there are seven of them. There's actually nine feasts they celebrate today, but Hanukkah and Purim are not included here because they don't actually come into Israel's history till later on. So the seven feasts you have revolve around three major feasts. You have Passover, and going with Passover, you had unleavened bread and first fruits. Then you had Pentecost, all by itself. And then you had Tabernacles, or Sukkoth, as it is today. And before that, you had Feast of Trumpets, right around Tabernacles. You have Rosh Hashanah, then you have Feast of Trumpets. Then you have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and that concludes with Sukkoth, which is Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the seven feasts that Israel celebrated. And here, he's only going to talk about the three main ones because those are the only ones that will be affected by being in the land because he's not going to repeat himself everything he's already said in Leviticus and Exodus. He starts off here with Passover, which is Israel's spiritual birthday. And again, Passover is the only one mentioned. He leaves out unleavened bread and first fruits because nothing changes for those feasts being in the land. Now, 
We have already covered Passover, so I'm not going to go into all the details, and Moses won't either. He's just going to focus on the parts that are unique to being in the land. So verse 2, how will the Passover be affected by being in the land? He explains here. He says, you shall therefore, you remember, you got to remember to do it, and you shall therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord your God of the flock and the herd, but here it is, in the place which the Lord shall choose to put his name there. So when you would go through the whole ritual, remember, you'd have to go pick a lamb out of the flock, and it would have to be a certain age, it would have to be no spot, no blemish, anything, and you would come, and the lamb would live with you for a certain period of time, I think it was two weeks, and you'd get to know the lamb and everything, and then, you know, you would kill the lamb. And again, the idea of, of showing the cost, because it points forward to Christ, who is a lamb of God who lived among us, who we got to see, got to see how he lived. He was without blemish, all that kind of stuff. And then he died. He was our Passover lamb. But they would bring that lamb and then they would kill it and they would bring it to the tabernacle. Now the problem is, is that the tabernacle would not be in one spot when they would get into the land. The tabernacle would move around based on wherever God told them to put it. And that meant that you had to bring your lamb to the tabernacle even if you lived far away from it at this point in time. So he says, you cannot just do it in your home. You have to bring it to the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Now he talks about the rest of the feast. You shall still eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days we eat unleavened bread with it, even the bread of affliction. For you came forth out of the land of Egypt in haste. Unleavened bread... We might like it today, put a little bit of salt on it, you know, and you got matzo, it's great, right? Maybe put some stuff on it. But back then, that was not necessarily the bread you were looking for because it didn't have the yeast and it didn't have all the flavor, hadn't been bacon and everything for a while, didn't bring the same smell, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was just very plain. And so it was called the bread of affliction. There was nothing special about it. And the idea was just they wouldn't have time for the yeast to rise, the dough to rise and everything. They would have to leave in a hurry because the angel of death would pass over that night and it would kill all the firstborn. And so they had to be ready to go the next day. Now he says, you need to do this that you may remember the day when you came forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. Now we talk about this, we think, well, wait a second, I thought Paul said forgetting those things that are behind and pressing onto the things in front, right? Yes. And it's good to move on from the past, but it's never good to forget what Jesus saved us from. Never good to forget because it keeps us from returning to it. And was it talk about the unwise person that says they're like a dog returning to their vomit? I had a dog that would do that, you know, and you would see you know, one of the kids would throw up, one of us as kids would throw up, and then he'd go running over there and, no, 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 it's gross, man. But he doesn't know any better. He's just all smiling and everything. Food. It's even all liquidated already. But remembering what Jesus saved us from keeps us from going back to it like a dog to his vomit. Now he says there, there shall be no unleavened bread, verse 4, no unleavened bread seen with you in all your coasts, so in all your borders. This applies everywhere, wherever you live, no unleavened bread, even though nobody can see. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which you sacrifice the first day at evening remain all night until the morning. So the idea was, when you bring your, bring your sacrifice to the Lord in the tabernacle, you can't bring a bunch of that meat home and be like, well, I don't want to lose some of that meat. No, it was a whole sacrifice, a burnt offering given completely to the Lord. Now here it is, verse 5. You may not sacrifice the pastor over within any of your gates in your local town where you live, which the Lord your God gives to you. But at the place which the Lord your God shall choose to place his name in, the tabernacle, wherever he puts it, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at the evening, at the going down of the sun, at the season that you came forth out of Egypt. And you shall roast it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God shall choose. And you shall turn in the morning and then you can go back home, go back to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And then on the seventh day, there will be a solemn assembly, a holy gathering of all the people. It says to the Lord your God, and you shall do no work therein. Now it's interesting here. The Lord reiterates over and over again, you cannot do this in your town. You need to bring the lamb, the Passover lamb to the tabernacle because the Lord is the one who's going to pick where you worship him. 
Now again, that's the principle we've already learned about worship. I must worship God the way he commands. Otherwise, it's not worship. If I am going to decide, I'm, I worship God how I want, well, then it's not worship. If you pick how it happens, it's not worship. You're not giving up anything. You're not surrendering anything. You're not letting anyone else call the shot. Literally, it is worship. It's worship of self. That's the only type of worship it would be, even if you're singing his praise or anything else. I love here that he says on the seventh day, you're not going to do any work. They already knew that. So why does Moses reiterate that? Well, for the same reason he reiterates to make sure they eat unleavened bread for six days. It's because in the desert, you couldn't hide it if you were working on that day or if you were eating leavened bread. You thought, I don't want to eat that plain bread. I need me. I want me some good bread. No, everybody would know if you were doing that. They'd smell it and go, what is that? And they'd come over and go, what are you making? Nothing. You would know right away that they were breaking the law, breaking the rules. So you couldn't get away with it when everyone's camped together. But what about when you're on your own? land and you're the only person there. Nobody would see but the Lord. And so again, another reminder to be obedient to the Lord, even though others can't see. So that's Passover. Now in verse nine, we move on to the feast of Pentecost. He says, from Passover, seven weeks shall you number unto you. So 49 days after the end of Passover, he says, from such a time as you begin to put the sickle to the corn. So from first fruits to the end of the harvest, it would be 49 days. And so the next day, then you would have this feast, the 50th day. That's what Pentecost means, 50 days. So this would be the fourth feast, but the second major feast time. And he says, there you shall keep the feast of weeks. That's another name for Pentecost. Unto the Lord your God. And what, what would you do with it? With a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give unto the Lord your God, according as the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, and the Levite that is within your gates, and the stranger, the foreigner, and the fatherless, and the widow that are among you, in the place which the Lord your God has chosen to place his name there. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt, and you shall observe and do these statutes. During this time, the Feast of Pentecost was to celebrate the end of the harvest time and God's provision. It was a big, huge celebration that they would have. When you would do that, you would bring a tribute, which means a portion from your harvest. You would bring a a portion of your harvest, and it says here, according as the Lord your God has blessed you. So if you had a big harvest, you needed to bring a larger amount. Everybody would bring like a 10% amount. You would bring a larger amount, according as God had blessed you. If you had a bad harvest, and you'd only bring 10% of what you harvested. Everyone then could participate. But what's interesting is that not only are your family participating in the celebration of God's provision, but it says the foreigners invited, the Levites are invited, the fatherless, the orphans are invited, and all the widows are invited. So all the poor, they're invited as well. Now, why would they be invited to to celebrate here? Everyone participated in Pentecost because Pentecost had a welfare element. See, when you would come and bring your offering, your tribute to the Lord, it would go to the Levites. Also, anything that fell on the ground during your harvest, you weren't supposed to pick it up. It was to be left for the poor or the foreigner who didn't have any land to provide for himself. Everyone technically harvested something, which means everyone had something to give. So everyone would come to the tabernacle to celebrate this feast. You couldn't do this in your town or in your city or whatever. You would have to come and everyone would have this big, huge food bash together. They have a big, huge celebration dinner together wherever the tabernacle was. And it was a huge event. Everybody had to be wherever the tabernacle was at this time. The other feasts like first fruits or unleavened bread, you didn't have to be there for that. But for Passover you did and for Pentecost you did. One other thing there, he says that you're going to do this and you shall remember verse 12 that you were a bondman, a slave there in Egypt. Once they were in the land, it would be very easy to forget their trials in the past that they were harvesting for someone else, right? That they were doing work for others with no blessing upon themselves, no financial gain for themselves. It's interesting that he says, you know, remember to do this as you're being generous, right? Be generous and then remember that you were a slave. Being generous reminds us how God generously rescued us 
from our troubles, doesn't it? Growing up, my family was never rich. My dad worked very hard. If I have any work ethic at all, it came from my dad. He worked very hard, but you know, we didn't you know, have a ton of money growing up. I've never aspired to be rich or anything. So there were times when we would go through trouble. Dad would gather us around the table and be like, all right, guys, the budget's tight. He'd let us know where we were cutting back and stuff. And, and we've had to do that at our family as well at times. Even in those moments, sometimes the Lord would say, hey, help that person out. And when you do that, you're reminded of how God's brought you as far as he's brought you, how he got you out of trouble at a certain time. And I would ask you tonight, do you have some way you're involved in helping those who are less fortunate than you are? All of us should have something that we do like that, even if it's small. And I would encourage you, if you have a family, don't just have it be part of the checks you write every month and go, well, we give this to the women's recovery ministry, you know, for battered women or whatever. That's great. But don't just write the check. Get the whole family involved. You say, how can I get my family involved in that? Read the newsletter and pray for the women who are there when in the newsletter. When you get the newsletter, hey guys, you want to let you know we got the newsletter today? So after dinner, we're going to all talk about it and pray for some of these ladies. The kids may not be giving financially. They're involved in that process of thinking of someone outside of themselves. When we do our, our shoebox thing for the, the Operation Christmas Child here, whenever we've done that as a family, we go out as a family and we purchase it. We let the kids pick an item and we let the kids, you know, dad, we pray for the kids that they're, they're going to go to. And we tell them, we encourage them, hey, pray for the kids that this is going to go to. Again, even if it's just reading the quarterly newsletter and praying for the work that's going on for that ministry as a family or that charity as a family, then that's, that's getting them involved. Find some way that you can be generous to those who are less fortunate than you. Now, the third feast that he mentions here is tabernacles, verse 13. And you shall observe the feast of tabernacles for seven days. After that, you have gathered in your grain and your wine. Now, this takes us all the way to late September, mid-October. That's the time period we're entering into now. Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner. Yom Kippur and then Sukkoth are not far away. I think this year it's at the end of September, Sukkoth is. During this time, he says, you shall observe the feast of tabernacles for seven days. After that, you've gathered in your grain and your wine, and you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant, your maidservant, and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within your gates. Seven days shall you keep a solemn feast unto the Lord your God in the place which the Lord shall choose, because the Lord your God shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands. Therefore, you shall surely rejoice. Again, this type of feast, when you would start it off, you would gather everyone that's in your gates and you would bring them along. No one is barred from this feast. Rich or poor, powerful or insignificant, they are all invited to this feast. But again, you can't just do it in your town. You had to spend seven days wherever the tabernacle was camped out. That's where you had to go. That's a vacation. I mean, that's a long trip. You're going to not just spend one day there like the other two feasts, but you're going to spend a whole week there celebrating. This is kind of neat what they would do is they would go there and they wouldn't go rent a hotel or whatever. They would all bring their tents with them and everyone would camp outside. And what it was to be was a reminder. That's why Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tents. They'd all camp outside under the stars to remind them of what it was like when they were in the desert and that God took care of them, kept his promise, and brought them into the promised land. As they would be gathering that grain, instead of just going about their business going, woohoo, good harvest, they would remember, you know, it wasn't always this way. We weren't always in the land, but God brought us here. And so everyone was to come, everyone was to partake, everyone was to be blessed there at the tabernacle, even if it was far away. Why was it important for them to worship God the way that he tells them to? Because he says, verse 15, the Lord your God, he is the one that shall bless you in all your increase and in all the works of your hands. That's why you shall surely rejoice. You need to do this because the source of all your blessings, of the ability to work, is the Lord. We can become so focused on what we're doing that we forget who gives us the ability to do it and any success that comes from it, right? We can do that so easily. 
That's why worship's important. If you say, well, I don't have to worship, I don't have to go to church, I don't, you know, go to church. You know, I got stuff to do, I got a business to run, I got all else to do. I will not disagree with that. But worship is all about stopping what we're doing to show gratitude and to celebrate what God has done for us. That's what worship is. Worship is taking a moment to stop what I'm doing, to say, you know what, I have things I need to do, but I realize that the ability to do them and the success in doing them only comes from God's blessing on my life. So I'm going to stop doing what I'm doing right now for a moment to acknowledge him, to say thank you, and to celebrate all he's done in my life, right? That's what worship is. So that's why in in our day, we need to take time to read our Bible, to pray, to seek the Lord, to tell him thank you, to praise him, to adore him. That's why we need to take time in our week and to say, you know what? There's stuff that needs to get done. I'm going to church. I need to stop what I'm doing to talk to him, to say thank you to him, and to celebrate all he's done in my life. You see, if I set the terms for worship, then I've never really stopped what I'm doing, have I? And that's why it will never be worship. That's why worshiping God's my way isn't worship. Again, why were the other feasts left out? Why no mention of Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah? It's because they didn't require you to go to the tabernacle to celebrate them. Just these three. Verse 16. Three times in a year, he says, shall all your males appear before the Lord your God in the place which he shall choose. In the Feast of Unleavened Bread, number one, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Don't come without an offering, he says. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. God didn't ask someone who harvested little to bring a ton of stuff. God was not putting a burden of worship upon anybody. And if any man or church leader ever is burdening you, you know, with things, that's not the Lord, okay? And that's not our intent here. But it was a sacrifice for every person to stop his work and to present himself before the Lord. So worship does cost us something. It costs all of us something. And again, God doesn't ask us for what we don't have, but he does expect us to bring him something from what we do have. Whether it's our time or our money or energy, he expects us to bring something. It does cost us something. Now, is it worth it? Well, when you and I consider that Jesus gave everything for us, the answer, of course, is yes. You know, losing our lives to follow Jesus is always worth it. We learned about that this morning, didn't we? Now we move into verse 18. We now get to the civil authorities, laws for local authorities. He says, now when you get to the land, judges and officers shall you make you in all your gates, which the Lord God gives you throughout your tribes. Here we see this is a little bit different than what Moses had been doing in the desert. He says he set up judges and officers. Now judges were those who were responsible to give formal pronouncements on legal disputes. They already had those. Officers here would be just civil servants who would assist the judges. I don't know what they did. They worked with them. But it mentions here that every town, every city with gates was required to have local authorities to enforce God's laws. Now in the desert, that's not how Israel did it. They had a tiered structure of judges that would lead all the way up to Moses for the hardest cases, kind of similar to our court system, where you have like, you know, the local court, and if you appeal to a higher court, and then it goes to a higher court, and then of course, eventually it can go to the Supreme Court, right? We have a tiered system like that. That's how Israel did it in the wilderness. They had a tiered system. It started with somebody was over 10 families. If you had any legal disputes, you went to that guy. But if it was too hard for him, then it would go up and up and up until the hardest cases went to Moses, Okay. That was easy with everybody in the same spot having that structure. But that would be too difficult when they're in the land because they'd be all spread out. So Moses sets up this system, every town having their own local authorities. Now, when Moses set up the first system, he spent two chapters in Exodus laying down principles for being a good judge. He doesn't do it for two chapters here, but he says something similar for these guys. He says, number one, you must judge justly. They shall judge the people with just judgment. It means what is honest, what is fair, what is accurate, what is right. And can I tell you, that is one of the most important qualities to be a good civil servant. They need to be honest, fair, 
accurate, and right. If that is compromised in an individual, it does not matter how good their policies or plans are, they will become corrupted by the power they possess, period. They must be honest, fair, accurate, and right. Now, what does that look like? Well, he says here, you shall not rest judgment. The word there means stretch the law. Man, (laughs) our leaders need to read that. Because when I look at the Constitution, I look at legal things that were set up, and I see the precedents that have been set over 200 plus years of our country being around, and now we've, well, the law says this, and you go, that's not what they meant. But it's been stretched and twisted and turned around, I mean, to the point of breaking at times, and you go, how did you get there? Don't do that, Moses says. You must not do this. If you're in law enforcement or in in legal work, you know, don't do that. If you're a lawyer, if you're a judge or, you know, you work in the courthouse, don't stretch the law. Secondly, it says, you shall not respect persons. The word there means to be prejudiced towards someone, to make a decision based on factors other than the facts at hand. In other words, to warp justice because the defendant is a friend or, you know, a relative or something like that. He's, no, 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 don't do that. Don't make a decision based on factors other than the facts that are at hand. Next, he says, neither take a gift, which means a bribe. Don't take a bribe. You know, if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I just want to tell you, judge, you're doing such a good job, and they hand you a present. Just don't take it. Why? Well, he says, for the gift does blind the eyes of the wise, and it perverts, it twists or distorts the words of the righteous. It has a tendency to ruin even a righteous man who's trying to do the right thing. I've seen people go to Washington who I voted for, who I thought were good men. And then you, you see all of a sudden, you know, they had these ideals and they said, this is what we're going to do. And this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to stand for no matter what. And then over time, what happens? Little by little, that gets whittled away at. And then they start the game. Well, I'll give you this if you give me this. And you start to think to yourself, what happened? What happened? Well, they started getting gifts. They started getting gifts from people. I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. And then you think, well, that guy's not a bad guy. Yeah, yeah I know I disagree with him here and here and here, but he's a good guy. And then he says, hey, let's work on this together. And then, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself knee deep in compromise. He says, don't do that. Don't take any gifts like that. You just stick to your principles. You stick to what's right, honest, just, and fair. And you keep moving. That which is altogether just, what is honest, fair, accurate, right, that's what you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God gives to you. The word there, follow, it's interesting. It doesn't mean just to follow behind. It means to pursue or even chase. When do we become tempted We become tempted when we're meandering toward the right thing, right? You know, the Lord's like, hey, hey, spend some time with me and and, and, you read your Bible and we're like, yeah, Lord, let me just get him a coffee and, you know, let me just, you know, and I'm not saying that's sin if you do that. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is, you know, when do we usually end up all of a sudden not reading our Bible, right? Because we're meandering toward the right thing. If we're chasing the right thing, temptation can't snag us. Won't be able to get a grip, right? You know, are you pursuing what's right? I mean, we're not judges, most of us here. Are we pursuing what's right, though? Are we chasing after it? We need to be. Now, not only must these local authorities judge justly, but also they must worship correctly. Look at verse 21. He says, You shall not plant you a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord, which you shall make you. Neither shall you set up any image there. It means a statue or a pillar to other gods, which the Lord your God hates. And then you're not allowed to sacrifice, verse 117. There really shouldn't be a chapter break here. You shall not sacrifice unto the Lord your God any bullock or sheep wherein is a blemish or any evil favoredness. If it's got a a grumpy disposition, you can't bring that to the Lord. For that is an abomination. 
abomination unto the Lord your God. Why does he have to say this? I mean, these are rules everybody should be following. Nobody's allowed to make the word their grove means the Asherah poles. That's a, the worship of the goddess Asherah, a very cultic, sexual goddess. It was disgusting what they did there. Don't make any of these statues and pillars to other gods. Don't bring that near to the worship of the Lord. Nobody's allowed to do that. So why does he have to point this out for the judges? Well, leaders will frequently be pressured to compromise by those they lead. Oh, but we're using this statue to worship the Lord. This is for the Lord. It's for him. I get asked some funny things sometimes. I won't list what they are, but I get asked some funny things. Hey, you know, uh, can we do this at church? And and I'll think, no, no, we can't. (laughs) No, we can't. Oh, but but it's for the Lord. You know, I understand, you know, it's kind of edgy and stuff like that, but it's for the Lord. I'm like, no, no, we're we're not doing that for the Lord or anybody else because it's just wrong. God says, don't do this. So we're not going to do that. Leaders must not fear offending people above offending the Lord. I I mean, that's just how it goes. Leaders must not fear offending people above offending the Lord. As people that are to put God first in all we do, we must keep love for His character and nature our primary focus. This includes when we celebrate victories, remember previous hardships, and help lead others into life lived God's way. His word and His ways are to be our guide as we continue our journey through life. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.